I'm Bill Bubert. Stoicism changed my life, and it can change yours. Stoicism counsels self-mastery more than submission to desire. It provides a toolkit for you to live a satisfying and deliberate life and to lead others to do the same. The dash is not only the brief part on the tombstone that symbolizes your time on earth, but the process to make it all worthwhile. Welcome to episode three of The Dash, a Stoicism podcast. This episode will concern itself with moral injury and war and conflict and military service. It's a difficult podcast for me to do in certain respects, but before we get to it, I'd like to take care of some housekeeping. I appreciate listener feedback and all the positive responses and some negative responses that I've got from folks on this podcast. If you wish to write to me and uh, send me criticism, notes, requests, comments, whatever the case may be, you may do so at tdpodcast.pm.me. That is tdpodcast.pm.me. So one may ask, what is the difference between PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and moral injury? Well, PTSD is fear-based. Moral injury is based in moral judgment, and having it requires a working conscience. The two can share some symptoms, like anger, addiction, or depression, but moral injury has no diagnosis or Treatment protocols. Examples of moral injury are using deadly force in combat or causing the harm or death of civilians, giving orders that result in the injury or death of fellow military personnel, making critical life and death decisions such as the rationing of care to a limited number of patients in a combat zone. It may be the the regret, the survivor's guilt that one feels if you've lost members of your team in conflict, wartime, or whatever the case may be. For me, moral injury is real. The reason I say that is this. Sometimes around Veterans Day or Memorial Day, because I have over two dozen years in service and in uniform, people will say, thank you for your service, and most of the time, I remain silent now. I used to say, well, I didn't make you as safe as you thought you were or are, I did not expand your freedom, I did not guarantee your liberty, and I happen to have done things in my career that I will openly admit I am ashamed of, uh, I have grief for, and I have to live with that until the end of my days in this dash that I had between my birthday and my death day. It is my moral conscience, it is my ability to, I guess, sort of beat myself up and take myself to task for taking decisions in the past or being involved in things that in better times or less conflicted times or less time-constrained events would have been things that I would have not only hesitated to do but refused to do. There were two instances in which I refused to do something, and while I didn't suffer any complications in my career as a result of that, I do have the solve on my conscience that at the time I did the right thing, and I feel as if I did the right thing at the time. I mean, humans have a wonderful way of rationalizing the behaviors that we exhibit or participate in, especially in the past, because rationalization tends to coexist with reflection, where we try to make the best of past mistakes, past injuries we may have committed against others. But in this case... Moral injury is a much more existential demon that 
particularly soldiers of any time, any place. I mean, uh, I'm speaking to the contemporaneous events that I was involved in in the 80s, 90s, and, uh, and this new millennium. But I have suffered no more nor any less than soldiers going back 5,000 years. You know, one way in which moral injury affects veterans is that veterans who experience the moral injury, they can be overwhelmed by negative feelings or thoughts, uh, feelings of guilt, shame, remorse, uh, that violated either teachings they learned externally, teachings they took in through internal reflection and contemplation, maybe a church, maybe the way their family was reared, maybe the way they experienced things with their friends, maybe something as as monumental as that helicopter pilot, that heroic helicopter pilot at My Lai during that massacre by Lieutenant Callie, who positioned his aircraft and his co-pilot, and I think a couple others in his aircraft, between the villagers who were being slaughtered by the U.S. Army unit and the U.S. Army unit itself when they had their guns at their disposal to do what they wished. He really put himself in the catbird seat by placing himself between those who were innocent, in this case the Vietnamese villagers, and those who were not so innocent, in this case Cali's troops. Now what I'd like to do, as everybody knows, is that I'm quite a um, vociferous reader, and I have a couple books on this very subject to include Choices Under Fire, Moral Dimensions of World War II by Michael Bess. I have a couple books that I think are tangentially related to this, such as Robert Pape's two books, Cutting the Fuse and Dying to Win, where he talks about homicide, suicide bombers, and what they did to defend themselves against foreign invaders occupying and invading their land. And it's interesting, too, when you consider that what Pape started off in was what was the efficacy and moral dimensions of strategic bombing during World War II. And, of course, uh, after that conflict, the use of strategic bombing by East and West since the end of 1945. What he asked himself centrally in that that um, that book, and, and I think that the, the, the thread store, sort of runs through dying to win and cutting the fuse, is he says, the strategic bombing, especially during World War II, when bombs were not accurate at all, despite the uh, notions of the Norden bombsite and accurate bombing, nighttime bombing, and the complications that would have with non-radar bombing, no precision-guided munitions, anything like that, the tremendous collateral damage east and west, east in this case, would be the Tokyo firebombing in 1945, and of course the firebombing of Dresden and the carpet bombing of various German cities and German-occupied cities in some of the countries that they had invaded and, and, um, and occupied during World War II. Were there significant civilian casualties? Well, of course there were. And how can we measure those civilian casualties in the calculus to say we're winning at all costs, we're going to, as FDR would tell us, America is going to do unconditional surrender, where there will be no terms offered whatsoever to Japan or Germany, although in the case of Japan, there was a concession to the retention of the emperor. 
which was not exactly unconditional surrender, and that's A-OK with me. Unconditional surrender for Germany, of course. And what that allowed them to do was to rationalize the warping, wolfing, and tearing asunder of all the moral constraints left and right, top, above, bottom, that would stop one from doing a number of very evil things. Do I consider collateral civilian casualties in the tens or even the thousands or the tens of thousands to be evil? Yes, I do. What's astonishing when we look at it sort of as a, um, a backstop to all of this, you know, what, what was the, were there any limits to this preying on the moral dimension in wartime? Well, there was. During World War I, there was chemical and biological warfare. And I think that all countries involved in World War II came to the conclusion, with certain rare exceptions, I'll get to those in a moment, that the use of chemical and biological warfare may not be quite as optimal as we thought because of the nature of reciprocity and Newton's third law, which can be a bear when it comes to action and reaction. Hence, I think in the calculus of the warring parties during World War II, a determination was taken that they decided, nope, we're not going to engage in chemical or biological warfare. This doesn't mean it didn't happen, as I alluded to a little earlier. There is an island off of England in the Orkneys in which there were anthrax tests that were done, and I think that, if I recall, that island is still off-limits in a, in a rather poisoned area. And in Japan, not only did they seek to use various interesting means to set the bubonic plague on the West Coast, there was Japanese biological warfare units, and the Germans did this to a lesser extent, who experimented on human beings to see the extent that they could either drive those human beings to the edge of life or beyond, or find a means to weaponize biological or chemical agents in the future if the war had gone on. Fortunately, what we see in the history books, and for the most part the known history of World War II, no party in the war, Axis or Ally, participated in biological or chemical warfare by definition. Now you may ask yourself, what does moral injury have to do with Stoicism? Well, in my first two episodes of Stoicism, in the first one I tried to outline an introduction to Stoicism, why I owe Stoicism my very life. In the second episode, I talked about Stoicism in business. Well, I sort of wanted to close the circle on both of those because business is life and life is business because for the most part, especially as men, we provide and protect for our families. So we have to work for a living unless we were fortunate enough, like the Kennedys and others, to win the lottery and inherit millions and millions and millions of debt bucks on which we could survive, much like the royal family's extant spare now living in L.A. Moral injury isn't necessarily defined a disease definition by the Veterans Administration in America. I don't think it's even assigned one in our allied nations and our coalition allies in Europe. Uh, it's not in the psychiatric desk reference, the desk manuals and such. And what we discover is that while I can say I sustained moral injury, I'm not seeking benefit, I'm not seeking sympathy, I'm not seeking any of that. What I'm doing is saying out loud that 
I regret some of the things that I did. And that regret, because of the level of conscience that I have, affects me and makes me feel badly at times. Stoicism helps me with that because, as I mentioned in episodes one and two, span of control is huge. And span of control is one of the things that gives me tranquility and harmony in a sense that while things can be bad in this dash that we live in, things can be very good too, but it doesn't mean that we can't learn from the failures that we experienced. As I've mentioned previously, failure is, my, is certainly my greatest teacher, and I've discovered that my failures, if I take a look at them, I go open kimono and I examine what these things are, I can make my life better and hopefully make my life better for my family, my friends, my blood family, my closer family, my family through marriage and such, by either setting an example or acting as a sounding bar for things that they may be concerned about. I had the privilege of raising three sons, two daughters, and my three sons and my daughters are as close as we can be. One of my daughters I am not as close to as I wish I could be, but that's either for another episode or not for disclosure at all. But nonetheless, my three sons, I urged them not to go into the military. One of them, my youngest, didn't listen to me. So he joined Uncle Sam's misguided children, spent four years in the Marine Corps, and then he got out almost two years ago. I'm so glad that he got out. I'm so glad he didn't make it to a combat theater. I'm so glad that he didn't experience things that I did. Now, to a certain extent, he experienced some awful things because even in peacetime, there's awful things that occur in the military. He's lost colleagues through suicide, lost colleagues through accidents, things like that. He came out stronger on the other side. I think stoicism and the imbuing of stoicism in my boys has really strengthened their ability to be resilient, if not anti-fragile. And I really appreciate that. I really admire that in my children. And I honor that whenever I can. My son suffers a moral injury from the suicides of his colleagues for a variety of reasons, toxic leadership, bad circumstances, bad choices, low impulse control. You know, people wander into these side streets of life where they think that they have no place to go. And in this case, they ended their lives as a result of that. It affected my youngest son. He's resilient and he, he's a little stronger for it. But nonetheless, I can see that to a certain extent, he suffered a variation of moral injury. As a matter of fact, uh, he was fortunate enough to get stationed overseas where he just so happened to get stationed in the very place that he was born while I was serving with 1st Special Forces Group in Okinawa. So he happened to go over there as a Marine, and I was in the Army at the time. He had a good time, got to deploy, got to do some things, got to experience things in Southeast Asia, particularly in the Philippines, that showed him that the life that he led there and the life that he grew up with were pretty darn good compared to the rest of the planet. So he's stronger for it. And I really think that while he does suffer a moral injury or a variety of them, let me say that everybody does. Now, the first few moments of this podcast, I've spent saying, well, the moral injury 
that I have suffered is a result of having been in combat theaters or been in the military, whatever the case may be. I don't want that notion of moral injury to be isolated to the military. Moral injury will occur where you feel guilty for not having behaved in the fashion that you thought you had. And this is outside of the military. This could be in business. This could be a family. This could be a blood family, immediate family, married into family, whatever the case may be. Your relationships that you have with others can cause you moral injury. Now, the way you cope with that moral injury is going to be up to you. For me, I find that reflection, contemplation, and not talking to a lot of folks about it. But maybe the catharsis of even discussing it today helps a little. Uh, Some people are going to be able to reduce or diminish, and I won't say ameliorate, which means it vanishes completely, because moral injury never vanishes. As a matter of fact, I would say that moral injury, like the other gift of life that the military offered me, which was the fact that they made me a dead man walking that I talked about in previous episodes. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, what I mean by dead man walking is that having been in the military, having been in combat theaters, and having been close to death a number of times, what I discovered is that it sort of released me. It sort of took that gift of fear, as Gavin De Becker would call it, and gave it to me so I'm not afraid of crossing the river Styx or going to the other side or joining my brothers in Valhalla or any of that. If it happens, I just want to make sure that I die well. Well, if I happen to die in my, die a bed, per Henry V, and uh, I do that 10, 20, 25 years from now because I am in the September of my years now, if not the October of my years, I'll be content, I'll be happy, but If an act of death is what I have to experience, then I hope that I have a good death. But that's what I meant by the gift of being a dead man walking. So in addition to that, this moral injury that I have suffered, and I'm not alone. I mean, I'm surrounded by, I suspect, hundreds of millions, if not billions of other human beings who may not have found a phraseology, in this case, moral injury, to call this kind of niggling doubt or guilt or shame that they feel for something for which they've either named or haven't named yet, the way you confront this is you ask yourself with these kind of doubts and shame and guilt, what can you do with that to move forward to make you better and to make those you surround better off through the wisdom or lower level wisdom that you can impart about what this means to you and why facing one's demons, facing one's shame, whatever the case may be, these are things that we've got to do in order to make things better for ourselves. We can harken back to many conflicts, but I'd mentioned Choices Under Fire, Moral Dimensions of World War II by Michael Bess, and I wanted to quote something that he says in the book, quote, One of the most profound legacies of World War II lies in the mythology that still surrounds this conflict 60 years later, in films and novels and popular understanding and public memory, in the rhetoric and assumptions of diplomats and statesmen. This mythology, in a nutshell, is about powerful action against uncomplicated evil, the triumph of righteous military force in an overwhelmingly just cause. When George Lucas wanted to grab his audience in the Star Wars films with a viscerally satisfying 
confrontation between good and evil, he drew copiously from the imagery of World War II. The helmets, the marching ranks, the nihilistic power lust of the imperial leadership, the freedom fighters flying small fighter craft against giant enemy battle stations. The irony, of course, is that this kind of war imagery became hopelessly obsolete even before the war itself had ended. On August 6, 1945, the world was introduced to a new mode of combat and a new era of history. A solitary plane flies at a high altitude, well above the range of most anti-aircraft guns and enemy fighters, and releases a single device that obliterates a city. Quote, surrender now, or we'll do this to your whole country. End of quote. Still quoting from the book. Advanced technology replaces valor. Indiscriminate mass destruction replaces the age-old drama of man-to-man warfare. Within 10 years, by the late 1950s, the confrontation between good and evil had become a deadly technological standoff, with both sides locked in the embrace of a mutual suicide pact. The Star Wars films, in other words, were a carefully crafted fantasy, harking back nostalgically to an era in which the men and women could still put their lives on the line in the just cause of an all-out war against evil. But that era was irrevocably gone. World War II itself had traced a stark demarcation line across history. All-out war on this side of that line had become unthinkable. The ultimate human folly. A destroyer of worlds. A disgrace. End of quote. I disagree a bit with Bess in saying that World War II sort of ushered in that apocalyptic notion that he talks about because World War I, within its technological framework, the American Revolutionary War and the French and Indian Wars in the 18th century, and even the Roman conquest for the almost 1,000 years of their empires, especially when it came to facing East and doing battle with the larger empires that they were competing with, these kind of notions within technological constraints certainly expanded the moral framework of their time. There's a chronological conceit for historians, well, maybe for the general public at large, like with the woke nation that we suffer under today. There's a notion that because of past grievances, past sins, and such that we've committed, that we are based in that and we can't get any better than that. Well, I would tell you that once you recognize moral injury, once you see it in yourself, you don't have to share it with anybody if you choose to. Go ahead and do so. Maybe you could do it in a positive light where you tell people there, there are ways for you to learn from my failures or collective failures. What Stoicism lends me in the, all of this is it lends me the willingness to look in the eye directly those sins of omission, sins of commission, evil, those kind of things that I have gazed upon in my lifetime. I'm sure that all of my listening audience has their own variations of this, whether in conflict or not in conflict. Maybe you suffered in a criminal event. Maybe you were reared in a family that was suboptimal in their treatment of children. Whatever the case may be, moral injury is where you yourself look into the abyss of yourself and you ask, there it is. I'm going to acknowledge that it occurred. Now, how can I make myself better? So I'd like to close with a quote by none other than Chuck Norris. Quote, moral injury is differentiated from PTSD in that it directly relates to guilt. 
and shame veterans experience as a result of committing actions that go against their moral codes. Therapists who study and treat moral injury have found that no amount of medication can relieve the pain of trying to live with these moral burdens. End of quote. As is my want, I tend to recommend books because I can only touch so much in the short time that I spend with you during these podcasts. The first and foremost book I recommend is War and Moral Injury, A Reader by Robert Emmett Mager. The book that I just talked about by Michael Bess, which is Choices Under Fire, Moral Dimensions of World War II. Warrior's Return, Restoring the Soul After War by Edward Tick. And take a look at Mel Gibson's superlative Hacksaw Ridge, which is extraordinary in so many ways for the acting, the scripting, the choreography, the, um, the unflinching look at just how awful combat can be. But the man at the center, that is a man who takes moral injury head on. Thanks. This is Bill. I'll be checking out now. Stand by for another episode of The Dash. I do another podcast that I can't probably call a companion podcast to this. That's called Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare Podcast. I just released episode 8. Should be releasing episode 9. My ambition is fortnightly. I've stuck to that. My ambition for this, The Dash, was fortnightly. The holidays threw a crowbar into that notion. So until next time, this is Bill, out.